0: Listening to the City World Radio Network. High definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com. Good afternoon. Welcome to Intelligent Talk with Ralph McElveny. Join us every Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events.
1: Hello and uh, welcome to Intelligent Talk, IntelligentTalk.com. We're very pleased to have Mr. Stephen Harding, uh, S-T-E-P-H-E-N Harding, and his website is StephenHardingBooks.com. He's also the editor of Military History Magazine. And, Mr. Harding, thanks for coming on the program today. That's great to be with you. Could you please give me a website for the Military History Magazine, just so I make sure that I get it correctly?
0: Yeah, it's uh, www.historynet.com slash militaryhistory.
1: Okay, great. So, Mr. Harding, you've um, read a number. You've written a number of very interesting books, which I love about. And you sort of have a degree to a focus on the end of, end of World War II. Uh, your book on Japan and this book. The focus of our program today is your book about Castle Itter and the last battle. It's called. It was a that was a last battle in Europe. Is that correct?
0: Uh, yes, it was, in terms of direct combat between um, U.S. And, and German forces. Uh, there were skirmishes, obviously, that lasted even after the uh, formal ceasefire, uh, as there were in the Pacific.
1: Yes, I wanted, at the end I'm going to actually discuss briefly your Pacific book, because that's interesting as well. But um, the battle um, for Castle Itter, which was based in Austria, it was May 5, 1945. Castle Itter had some high-profile uh, prisoners, including two former French prime ministers. And basically, the SS was there to wipe out their, their prisoners, and some uh, Americans joined with uh, German forces to basically prevent that from happening. Could you just tell me how you got interested in this story, how you heard about it, Mr. Harding? Because it's a fascinating story.
0: Sure. Um, many years ago, I was a staff historian at the U.S. Army Center of Military History in Washington, D.C. And I was first told of the story by a very eminent historian there, a gentleman named Fred Beck, who had been sort of building up a, a file on the, uh, on the story for some time. He was not able to continue on with it, and he literally handed the file to me and, and said, you know, you should do something about this. So I uh, immediately put the file away for 25 years uh, because, as we know, life intervenes. Um, and then I pulled it out probably seven or eight years ago. And started doing initial uh, or additional research. I was able to track down and interview um, two direct participants in the battle. Um, I traveled to Castle Litter, and I walked the ground so that I I had a good sense of it in my mind, and then I sat down to write the story.
1: Yes, and and so Castle Litter had a number of high-profile prisoners. As I said, there were two former French prime ministers. Could you tell me some of the other prisoners in, in the castle?
0: Sure. There were a total of Fourteen French prisoners held cats litter. litter. Uh, um, ten were men, four were women. Among the men, there were, uh, as you mentioned, a couple of former uh, prime ministers, Edouard de Ladier uh, and Paul Reynaud, and there were also uh, several military officers, General Maurice Gamblin, <coughs> sorry, and uh, General Maxime Weygand, And then there were some other people who were there because of their political connections. There was a gentleman named Francois de la Roque, who was a a Leading labor leader. Um, there was a guy named Jean Barbotre, who was a, a very famous French tennis player who was there because he had been part of the Vichy government. Uh, among the women, there were, of course, Madame Vagon, uh, General Vagon's wife. Uh, there was a woman named Marie Agnès Caillot, who was actually the sister of Charles de Gaulle, and her husband was there with her. The interesting thing about all of these people was that many of them hated each other with a passion. They were from opposite political parties. Uh, the two generals disliked each other because they agreed uh, disagreed on the tactics that should have been used to prevent the fall of France. And so the Germans, uh, not only did they concentrate all these people in one place, I think they intentionally put them all together so that they would um, just bedevil each other for the entire time they were there.
1: That's fascinating. One of the interesting things you bring out in the book is uh, before they're put together as prisoners, the two former French prime ministers are put on trial by the Vichy government, the collaborationist government that Hitler uh, basically allowed to exist in France, and they were doing so well in the trial uh, that, that they shut down the trial. Could you just talk about that? I didn't know that aspect of it either.
0: Yeah, the, uh, the government in Vichy, led by Marshal Pétain, the World War I uh, hero, uh, had to find some way to legitimize itself. And one of the ways they tried to do that was to prove that uh, not only two prime ministers, but a whole range of former French officials had somehow betrayed France. Uh, which was walking a tightrope, because, of course, by saying they betrayed France, that meant that they had allowed France to be captured by the Germans, which, of course, was the sponsor of Vichy France. So there were, um, there were several political uh, trials that went on at that time, and Deladier and Renault both uh, represented themselves so well that the, the, uh, the Vichy uh, government and their German masters uh, decided it probably wasn't a good idea to continue, so they essentially ended the trials and imprisoned uh, those two gentlemen along with the uh, the other people. Um, not just at Castle Litter, but throughout France, there were former French officials that were imprisoned by the Vichy regime um, because they were too outspoken about um, the, shall we say, the shortcomings of Vichy.
1: I don't think that happened too much in either Germany or German occupied countries. That someone does so well in a the trial, they shut it down because. By the time 45 came around, you had uh, Roland Rossler, I forget his name, who was killed in a bomb attack, but he was doing those those, trials with the people who collaborated against Hitler in June of 44, and they didn't have much of a, it was just sort of a couple days and they killed the people. I guess it was more uh, at the early beginning of the war. So that was an interesting part. So uh, as we get to the end of the war, um, they're in Castle Itter, all these high-profile prisoners, and they believe that they're going to be killed by these roving SS units, which are under orders from Himmler to basically, Heinrich Himmler who was head of the SS, to be deal very harshly with anyone who was looked like they were surrendering or defeat us. Is that right, Mr. Harding?
0: That's essentially true. Um, in in the, the last weeks of the war in Europe, um, the, the German forces were essentially crumbling. Except for certain SS and Gestapo organizations that were going through Austrian and, for that matter, German villages, and anybody who'd hung out a white flag uh, was immediately pulled out of their houses and executed on the spot. At the same time, you had uh, U.S. forces that were coming south out of Germany uh, from the the Munich area into the Tyrol part of Austria, which is where Castle Litter is is located. And and the reason that part of Austria was so important is. Um, Castle Itter sort of commands what's called the Brixenthal Valley. Now, the Brixenthal Valley, it follows the Brixenthal River. It was a traditional route uh, of access between Central Europe and, and Italy. So you had, you know, allied forces moving north up out of Italy and south out of Germany, and it was kind of concentrating some of the remnants of the German forces, um, one of which was the 17th SS Panzer Grenadier Regiment, which was known as Goetz von Berlingen. And it was elements of that uh, SS organization that were tasked by Himmler to go to Castle Litter and essentially eliminate all of the French prisoners, but also any remaining German um, personnel that might be there. Because Castle Litter was was an arm of the concentration camp system, although a very nice uh, part of the concentration camp system. And so Himmler wanted no witnesses, French or German, left behind.
1: So the, the so they get word of this, Mr. Harding, and then they send out for help from the American units. Could you please explain how the process of they found out about this and then sent for help? The people in the in the castle.
0: The um, the way the French found out that they were in danger was at uh, all of a sudden most of the German guards left. The senior commander, a guy named Sebastian Vimmer, who was a real nasty piece of work, he disappeared, and the French first thought, oh well, we're free, and then the um, wiser heads among them said no we're not free because there are all these Germans in the area they may not specifically have known that himmler was sending an ss unit after them but they knew they were in extreme danger so they um tasked a, uh, a worker at the castle himself a uh, a prisoner although of much lesser status to literally go out and find the nearest allied units and tell them that this group of French VIPs was in danger, um, and to come as quickly as they could. Um, at, at as an addition to that, they also tapped Jean Barotra, this former tennis player, who, although uh, in his 40s, was in excellent physical condition. He went over the wall and went himself in search of uh, Allied forces. Um, both Barotra and and the uh, workmen found Allied units. Um, the one that they. Uh, Came across first actually was not an Allied unit. It was a German organization uh, based in a small town called Virgel, which is not that far from the castle. And the commander of that uh, unit was a Wehrmacht major named Joseph Gangel. He was known by the nickname sepp He had never been a Nazi, but he had fought on both the Eastern and Western fronts. And he had decided that the war was long lost. He didn't want any more of his men killed. Uh, and he found out about uh, these. French VIPs being held in ITER in and determined that he was going to protect them, but he couldn't do it by himself because he didn't have enough men, so he went out and contacted the, the closest American unit he could find, which was a company of Sherman tanks um, led by a gentleman named Jack Lee, a uh, U.S. Army captain from uh, upstate New York. And now you can imagine the, the the first meeting between these two gentlemen. You have a, a very decorated German military officer, because he had fought bravely on, on both fronts, coming under a white flag and contacting an American unit that, you know, the members of, of that unit, for all intents and purposes, assumed the war was over. Hitler was already dead. He'd been dead for a week or so. And, and suddenly Captain Jack Lee decides that they're going to go on this mission, and they're going to do it um in cooperation with these German soldiers under Sepp Gangl. So it, it was a, a very unusual situation, to say the least.
1: Yeah, so um, and, and th- th- they send one Sherman tank, right? That's so all they can spare at first is one Sherman tank for Captain Lee, and then um, so it's not much of a protective force at first, given what they were facing from the SS, correct?
0: Well, they started out actually with uh, three Sherman tanks, but they had to drop uh, one of them off to guard a very vital bridge, because the thought was that we'll go to the castle and we'll rescue these people, and then we'll get them out of the castle and back to American lines. To do that, they had to protect a a very significant bridge, so they left one there, and then another one uh, got dropped off for other reasons. So when they finally reached Castle Itter, yes, they only had one Sherman tank. And uh, when they realized that they weren't going to be able to get the people out before nightfall, uh, because they were still roaming, you know, SS units and Gestapo people, they backed that single tank, which was Lee's tank. It, he called it Basaton Jenny. That was the name of the tank. They backed it up against the uh, front gate to the castle. And I will tell you, having been at the castle, um, it, it was a probably a frightening experience just to back the tank up because it had to go over a very narrow arched stone bridge. And you're talking about a, a vehicle that weighs tons, several tons. Uh, so by the time the Americans and their German um, allies arrived at Castle Litter, they only had that one tank, and it didn't survive for very long.
1: Yes, so that's right. So they, could you tell me about the fighting, please? And how, they, were, they were greatly outnumbered by the SS, correct?
0: They were. The, the good thing about Castle Itter is it's a castle, and it, although it had been <clears throat> excuse me built uh, originally, the, the, the first for fortification on that site goes back centuries. The Castle uh, Itter itself was, was at one time a hotel. It was a private home. Uh, the Germans even used it early in the war as a center of propaganda for, uh, to counter smoking among the Germans, which is kind of an odd thing. But it is a castle, and it's on a promontory that is connected uh, to the rest of of that uh, of the town uh, of Itter by this narrow bridge. So when you you know pull the doors closed and everything else, you you have a, a castle that w- that is built of stone, and and although it wasn't necessarily built to withstand. Uh, sieges. It was able to do that because of the thickness of its walls. The defenders, which were Jack Lee's troops and Sepp Gongel's men, um, never totaled more than you know a score, basically. Uh, but they they had a defensible position. They had heavy weapons, and until the Sherman tank was knocked out, they had its gun and its machine guns. But they were being assaulted by hundreds of you know heavily armed SS troops. The problem for the SS troops is they had to get into the castle and um, there was really only that one way in, although there was also a sally port, which is a sort of a medieval term for a doorway from which troops could sally out of the, the fortification to you know forage or do whatever. And uh, ultimately, it was a a seesaw battle between the SS people trying to get into the castle and the joint German-American force defending the castle. Uh, It was a raging battle. Um, It it actually was the 4th and 5th of May because the fight started late on the 4th and continued into the morning of the 5th.
1: And do you have an idea as to break down approximately how many Germans and how many Americans there were defending um, the castle?
0: The numbers uh, are sort of... um, up in the air because i was able to determine that the joint force of americans and germans totaled somewhere around twenty two people now several of uh... sept german troops defected they went over the walls and and joined the ss because they were assuming that the castle would fall and rightly assumed that had the ss gotten in they would have executed every german there that was there uh, for for treason Um, So I I generally use the number of 20 to 22, um, and they were a mix of Wehrmacht and U.S. uh, tankers. Um, Sepp Gangl himself has uh, a fascinating military history that goes back to before the the Nazi regime. He'd been a mountain soldier. He'd been an artilleryman. uh, He'd fought at Normandy. He fought the Canadians uh, following the Normandy invasion. So this is a professional soldier who was not a Nazi, and he had the good sense to realize that this is a hopeless fight. So he was trying to protect his, uh, essentially, you know, 15 soldiers uh, that he had left, trying to prevent them from being killed pointlessly by the Allies. And yet here he finds himself in a fight against the SS, allied with American troops.
1: We know that Gangle was enthusiastic to support this operation, but the troops that were below him that he ordered to defend the castle, um, do you have any idea how, how enthusiastic they were and how they interacted with the Americans and how, how odd it was that these people that were fighting against each other a matter of hours or days ago were now on the same side? I mean, what a, what a unique, obviously, the only time in World War II this happened, I believe.
0: Uh, it is the only documented time in World War II when uh, German and American troops joined forces and fought together. The, the uh, enlisted soldiers that followed Gangl, um, for for the most part, from what I was able to determine from my research, trusted him and followed him willingly. Um they he had proved himself as a as a leader to them over and over again. There were of course, as I mentioned earlier, there were a couple of guys who thought, This is crazy, um, I need to get out of here and they went literally over the wall. Um, so uh, the the German soldiers that remained in Ider under Gongel's command were dedicated to him and fought very well. Now obviously the the first time the Americans handed weapons back to these German soldiers, who, as you pointed out, had until literally just hours before they would have shot them on sight if they'd seen armed Germans, there were some trust issues. There there really were, but I, it was the relationship between um, Jack Lee and Sepp Gongel that really sort of set the tone. These two men recognized in each other that they were each professional soldiers. Um, they might, might not have liked each other, but they needed to work together to achieve this um very important objective. So they sort of set all of uh, the rest of the opposition that they might have had to each other aside and worked together. And as it turned out, the, the Germans who remained in Castle Litter were key members of, of the defense, and they fought the SS. And, and as you can imagine, a lot of uh, Wehrmacht soldiers had no love for the SS anyway. Uh, so it was a, it was a very... Tense situation when the battle began, but I think over the course of that night, um, they learned, uh, if not to trust each other, then to at least give each other the benefit of the doubt.
1: You know, Mr. Harding, I, I, as I'm sure you know better than me, it's really fascinating to speculate. If, if you look, go back to June of 44, and let's assume um, that the German commanders in France had gone forward as if Hitler had died in that bomb explosion, which of course he survived. But they they had ordered the army to fight the SS, let's say in France, and and they had not capitulated when they found out Hitler was alive. It raises questions as to what could have been done by the German army, even with Hitler being alive, given the opposition to the SS, if they had really fought him in 44. I mean, because it's because you see this breach, this little mini breach here. But it just raises questions as what could have been a larger breach if you spun back the clock more, at least in my mind.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting question. Uh, You know, the one thing we we always need to bear in mind, uh, in 1944, especially in France, the strongest and best-equipped units tended to be SS units, um, Das Reich, um, some of the other, you know, armored divisions. Uh, so it, it would have been a hard fight had the Wehrmacht actually followed the orders of the senior generals and engaged the SS, because as we know, you know, the majority of the members of the SS were fairly fanatical about. Uh, defending the Reich, meaning defending Hitler and the Nazi regime, so it would have been a tough fight. And then, of course, you would have had the Allies trying to figure out who was fighting whom, and you know, sh- would they have supported the Wehrmacht in the fight against the SS? It's a fascinating question. Um, you know, speculative history is always uh, more interesting, I think, sometimes than actual history, because uh, there are so many ways that fight could have gone, and and would in fact it have changed the course of the war uh, Ab-
1: absolutely yeah. so this battle is then it goes into into the next day as you said till the fifth they basically hold the ss off and then they're relieved by other american units is that is that right
0: Yeah, they they were finally ultimately relieved by infantrymen from the 142nd Infantry Regiment, which was part of the uh, 36th Infantry Division, which was moving into that area, and um, specifically of Company E of the 142nd Infantry. And I I was able to talk to uh, some of the people who were involved in that, but um, included with Jack Lee's tankers, he was able, when when he first moved to the castle, he was able to sort of uh, draft a couple of infantrymen from... You know that were that were in Kufstein along with the tankers, and I talked to uh, one of the gentlemen that that was uh, one of the infantrymen, and he uh, he describes you know everybody thought the war was over, and suddenly here's this mission to go into an area that was crawling with SS. So no, you asked earlier, you know, how the Germans felt about it. Now, several of the Americans weren't all that enthusiastic about uh, going on this, what seemed to them to be kind of a harebrained adventure to this castle.
1: Of course, uh, yeah. and yet
0: they also um, there was a, a an infantryman named Pollock, who a very nice gentleman that I was able to speak to, and he described um, the fight for the castle, and and it was just it was an amazing description of his point of view of this lowly, you know rifle toting infantry guy, uh, and having been an infantryman at one point in my life, I understood his point of view perfectly. He had no idea what was gone, going on, but when people were shooting at him, he shot back. <laughs> that was, right. That was the the core of his of his method. Then.
1: All right. So the battle is, is is won, and and you um, you're involved. This is being made into a film. Is that right, Mr. Harding?
0: It is. Yes. In fact, it's in pre-production right now.
1: Uh, are they going to film it in Europe? Do you know, or in the U.S. or?
0: Yes, they're gonna they're gonna film. Um, a lot of the locations will be in Eastern Europe, Hungary and Romania, simply because those countries tend to look more like they did during 1945 than other places. Part of the issue is that um, Castle Litter is, is now in private hands, and uh, the owner uh, won't allow the filming to go on there. So um, the movie will be shot in Eastern Europe, with interiors shot in uh, London, I, I would imagine. Um, I I can't tell you a whole lot about it because <laughs> I'm not allowed to. Of course, but. There are some very um, uh, big French names uh, attached to the film, some very major American actors, and a couple of major German actors. Uh, And again, part of the reason for Eastern Europe is um, there are several companies in Hungary and a couple in uh, Romania that have fleets of World War II German vehicles, including armored vehicles, um, that they use for filming. Uh, so that's part of the reason for doing it in Eastern Europe. And at this point, um, the plan is to begin uh, principal photography in April or May.
1: Okay. I want to just briefly ask you about Last to Die, but just a final question on this. Was there any contact years after the war between these people who had fought in the battle? Did, did they stay in touch, Gengel and Lee? Did they have any contact?
0: Well, Gengel was killed in the battle. Oh, Gengel, yeah. sorry. Uh,
1: any of the other people that worked under Gengel, the German soldiers?
0: Um, there, were, As far as I've been able to tell, no, there was no direct contact. But um, after the book came out, after the German uh, edition came out, and, and The Last Battle has been published in 13 languages besides English, which I, I think is a wonderful thing. Uh, but I was actually contacted by Sepp Gongel's son, a gentleman named Norbert Gongel. And uh, that's been a great relationship. We've emailed back and forth, and I found out uh, more about his Father, although he never met his father, his father was killed when uh, Norbert was an infant. Um, And Jack Lee, of course, uh, was a a very interesting story, and I went into that in the book. How you know, uh, Jack Lee was one of those guys who found his niche as a combat soldier. Um, He had been a football player. uh, He'd been kind of a you know rabble rousing kind of guy, but he was very good at what he did. And unfortunately, like a lot of people who came back from World War II on both sides, on all sides. he just never found anything that that used his talents uh, the way war had, and and of course he um, he ended up having something of a sad ending.
1: Right. Okay. I can just turn briefly to your this book um, that you wrote, "Last to Die," and uh, Anthony Marchion. I probably have that pronounced incorrectly. Marchion. Marchion. Could, could you please?
0: Marchion. Yeah.
1: He, he was. Um. He was. Could you please tell me about him and how he died? And I just want to segue into that story with that.
0: Yeah, Anthony Marchion was born in Pottstown, Pennsylvania, and uh, he went into the Army Air Forces to be an aerial gunner. And uh, he flew several missions on B-24 bombers out of the Philippines. And as those missions uh, wound down as the war was was coming to an end, he was tapped to be an assistant uh, to an aerial photographer who was... um, on one of four B-32 bombers, and, and if you've never heard of a B-32, you're in good company, because most people have never heard of them. No, I never
1: uh, heard of them, yes.
0: It, it was a contemporary of the B-29, a four-engine heavy bomber, and only a handful of them actually got into the war at the end of the war in the Pacific. So four of these bombers were tapped to fly over Tokyo after the um, armistice had gone into effect on uh, August 15, 1945 and uh, they were over tokyo taking photographs of the tokyo area when they were attacked by renegade japanese fighter pilots who refused to lay down their arms Um, the planes were shot up and unfortunately anthony marchion was killed and he in the process sadly became the last american uh... killed in combat in world war ii now we do know that um even after the japanese surrender in september of 1945 um, japanese units on various islands in the pacific and including the philippines uh, continued to fight on and american troops were killed by japanese uh, soldiers after the japanese surrender but marchione holds the dubious distinction of being the last american killed in combat during world war
1: II, and one of them one of the soldiers supposedly surrendered white right in the seventies in the philippines If i remember right wasn't there a yeah
0: there, there was a, a japanese soldier who came out of the uh, the jungle in the nineteen seventies he'd lived um, on his own by himself uh... all of those years not knowing that the war was over a, a lot of japanese troops did not believe the announcements that were made over the radio, or even you know, told by their commanders, they just couldn't accept the idea that the uh, emperor had surrendered. So they continued to uh, continue to fight.
1: No one wants to obviously advocate dropping two atomic bombs as the U.S. did. But when you look at the fanatical resistance of the Japanese, and you mentioned also that the the Japanese emperor's speech that he had surrendered, even that was they tried to take a coup and take that from him. So even even the Japanese emperor trying to surrender was was just an amazingly difficult thing to do.
0: Indeed, indeed, and and the dropping of the two atomic bombs obviously continues to be a very con- controversial uh, actions at that point in the war. But from the historical point of view, um, you know, my father was in the United States Army in World War II, and he was uh, slated to be in the first landing echelon in the invasion of Japan, which experts estimated would cost one million Allied casualties. So from a purely military point of view, the atomic bombings uh, ended the war quickly. They prevented, uh, you know, allied casualties. They were horrific events. There's no getting around that. But militarily, um, they were defensible then, and I... I Tend to believe that they're still defensible, although the controversy continues.
1: What's hard to understand is that the, the Japanese emperor was so worshipped, and his brother, I believe, was in charge of Unit 731, so he was sort of actively involved in doing these terrible experiments in China and things like that. But if he was this sort of living god, and he, Japanese people couldn't even look at him and all, when he decided to surrender, how could the D- Japanese justify such resistance when he was this living god? Is, does that make sense to you in sort of understanding the Japanese fighting force?
0: Yeah, the Japanese who continued to fight, including the fighter pilots who ultimately killed uh, Tony Marchione, believed that somehow the emperor uh, was under duress. He had been forced to make this announcement. And so their concept was, we will fight to free the emperor. I see. Uh, and, and, and so through that manner, we conti- continue the war, because obviously the emperor must have been under duress if he surrendered.
1: So I see. So they were able to continue it under the color of emperor love, just that he was b- under a bad influence. So essentially they weren't defying him in their eyes.
0: Exactly, exactly.
1: And you mentioned also that if MacArthur had retaliated to, to that, to the killing of Mr., I don't want to put Anthony M., we would have had a, potentially a, a strong continuation of the war. Um.
0: Indeed, indeed. If, if MacArthur, you know, the, the death of Anthony Marchione was uh, a huge decision point for MacArthur because as the supreme commander in the region, he could have said, okay, let's go back to carpet bombing Tokyo with B 29s, which simply would have supported those. Japanese elements who said, you know, this couldn't have been the emperor's real wish. See, the Americans are continuing to bomb us, and combat could have continued. And and we have to remember that, that the Japanese had marshaled um, thousands of airplanes that they could have used at at some of the latter battles at like Okinawa, for example. They kept them on the home islands to to use to resist the Allied invasion. You know, the entire Japanese population was was being. Um, poised to fight any Allied invasion. So it would have been a bloody, bloody conflict. Conflict, And MacArthur made uh, a decision that in that case was very intelligent. He decided not to respond.
1: Do you also agree with MacArthur's decision to cover up the war crimes of the Emperor and his brother in Unit 731 and, and basically sanitize that? Was that the correct decision to be made, too, in order to, to rule that country and get the war behind us?
0: Well, I understand his reasons for thinking that. Um, you know, one of the things about writing about World War II, uh, and and all of my books, have, as you pointed out earlier, have been about World War II. Um, it's, it's easy now to look back and say, well, someone could have done this or should have done that. I think under the circumstances, you know, MacArthur's uh, key interest at that point you, know, you have to remember the russians in the literally in the last days of the war invaded japanese territory in manchuria right i agree with fdr and,
1: right they had 90 days to do it From, from the, like. yeah,
0: exactly so you know macarthur's uh i think um, actions were partially based on the idea that wait a minute the russians are coming rolling south out of you know um soviet territory into manchuria and china and oh my god what if they actually try to take part of japan so MacArthur's point of view, I believe, was we need to stabilize um, post-surrender Japan as quickly as we possibly can, and I think part of that calculus was to not make the emperor pay for the sins of uh, not not only his army, his own sins. I mean, the emperor was complicit in many ways in, in uh, the excesses of the Japanese during World War II. But MacArthur said to himself and to others that you know we need to keep you know the Japanese people. Essentially, on our side, uh, and and I believe that's probably the uh, the origin of his decision. Isn't that sort
1: of another irony of war that the person who's the chief antagonist of the Japanese essentially becomes the chief defender, the most important defender of the Japanese? Just a, like a, a couple of days later, it's just an amazing. It's almost like Castle litter people who are at each other's throats then defend each other and, and defend uh, an evil, and then switch sides on a dime.
0: Yeah, and you also have to remember that you know the Allies used uh, Japanese troops. Throughout Asia to protect or to, to try and maintain uh, the peace, for months after the end of the war, there were armed Japanese soldiers working under Allied officers to maintain order in some of the newly liberated territories.
1: How long did that uh, go on for, Mr. Harding?
0: It went on for for several months. That's not really my period, although I do know. Uh, in one of my other books, I talked about uh, a Japanese um, naval officer who, for probably six or eight months after the war, was in command of. Japanese warships whose guns had been uh, disabled, they were bringing Japanese troops back from all the far-flung places that they'd been stationed. And so he was in command of a Japanese warship for almost a year after the end of the war. Um, it was it was a very odd time, and it was, of course, the birth of, of what we now you know have come to call the Cold War.
1: So. Right. And I understand you have another book being made into a film. Is that right, Mr. Harding?
0: I do. Um, I have. I wrote a book about a gentleman named Hugh Barr Miller, who was an American Navy officer. His destroyer was sunk uh, in the Solomon Islands in July 1943, and he was literally cast away on an island crawling with Japanese. But instead of becoming a victim, he became um, essentially a warrior. He uh, took the war to the Japanese, killed many of them, and was able to evade capture and provide intelligence. And he was ultimately uh, awarded the Navy Cross uh, by Eleanor Roosevelt, who was touring the Pacific at that time. It, it's a it's a great story, sort of, um, you know, Tom Hanks Castaway <laughs> crossed with uh, you know, Hell in the Pacific.
1: I'm sorry, what and was it, his name again?
0: His name was Hugh Barr Miller.
1: Hugh uh, Barr Miller. And
0: yeah, he was a, an aristocratic uh, aristocratic Southerner. Um, that film is also in pre-production and is supposed to begin filming in Australia, also in the spring of 2019.
1: Okay, well, we're here uh, speaking with Stephen Harding. His book is, uh, website is Stephen, S T E P H E N Harding, H A R D I N G books.com. Uh, and, Mr. Harding, congratulations on your books and, and your two movies in process. And thank you so much for coming on today.
0: It was my pleasure to be able to speak with you today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye.